0: As Adam filled, filled us in here, we're, we're near the end of the 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness, or the Septuagint 40, 42 in Joshua chapter 5. And the Israelites have uh, gone past the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites and attacked two Amorite kingdoms, the kingdoms of Sihon and Og. And their territory will become the inheritance of two and a half of the tribes in the future. And the victory over Sihon and Og struck fear into the, into the hearts of the other nations around them. And we're going to see one of the after effects of that. And also this inspired the Israelites for the future. So we're going to look at the story of Balaam. And his donkey. And so, question number one. I I always ask myself the question, the so what questions. Why does this matter to us? Why should Christians pay any attention to this story? And I have an answer for the question. First of all, Jesus talks about this story, Revelation chapter 2. And then Peter and Jude do as well. Jude has one short letter. Peter has two short letters. And they both find the story important enough to mention it. To teach us actually important lessons, so uh, and and some warnings particularly, and to prepare us for what we should be expecting. So, and the other reason is, and we'll talk about this next Sunday, is in the story of Balaam, there are some fascinating prophecies about Jesus, even pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which are given about fourteen hundred years before his birth in Bethlehem. Several early Christians pointed to these prophecies, although they're not given much attention by most Christians today, which can strengthen and confirm our faith. So the story of Balaam is, is, is relevant for a few reasons. And Allison was talking to me this week about the story of Balaam, And she asked a question that maybe some of you have wondered about yourselves, which is, okay, was Balaam good or was Balaam bad? Or was, see, somebody who started off good who went bad? And there were many people in the scriptures like that. People are complicated. And I think about Solomon started off really good, but he ended up really bad, or Manasseh started out really wicked for a long time, but then he repented at the end. So there are people who people are complicated. They they change over time. And then there's the example of David. He started off really good, man after God's own heart. He sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery and murder of her husband to try to cover up his sin. And then he, he turned and went back to God and was forgiven, and so he ended up good again. So he went from from good to bad to to good again. Now, Balaam may be even more complicated than anybody in the scriptures. I'll give you my, between uh, this this Sunday and next Sunday, I'll give you my overview of Balaam. This is is how I would, would grade him. Is that he started off good, then he went bad, and then he got back on track and was good again, and then he finished very, very bad. So he was good to bad to good to, to very bad. So uh, he's a complicated person, and there's a lot to learn from complicated people in Scriptures. And we're going to cover the first three phases of that in the Scripture and in the lesson today, and then the fourth one we'll cover, talk about next week. Um now, my own personal, I'm gonna give a personal introduction. This is my introduction to the story of Balaam. And this goes back a long time. This goes back to the, the mid-1970s before many of the people in this room were even born. And um, I grew up in New Jersey, and my father was the county administrator. He was the, he was in charge of the executive branch of the government in the county that we lived in. And I'm gonna I'm gonna share something about myself, which I'll probably live to regret, but as a child, now I'm sure that many of you think of me as a very well-balanced individual here, okay? Someone someone in the back of the room is shaking their head. I'm not going to say who it is, but it looks a lot like my wife Allison. So, but... Any of you who are under the illusion I'm a well-balanced person when, when I was when I was a kid I mean I like to go out and play in nature I, I enjoyed the woods but my parents made the mistake of keeping the house encyclopedia in my bedroom and so what I would do in my spare time is read the encyclopedia okay a couple people shaking their heads there all right. And I want to encourage you, any, any of you who maybe have lots of children, there's, there's a chance if you have enough kids that one of them is going to end up kind of like that. <laughs> okay? Cut them a break. Okay? They, might, they may end up, well, there's hope for people like that. But, so I, I would read the encyclopedia. And it both gave my mother a sense of pride, but also irritated her that no matter what question she asked me, I would generally know the answer to the question as a kid. So, uh, whatever. But so, that's, so, that was, I was the firstborn son, but I also knew a lot of random stuff just because that, that's what I did. So, so my father, who was the county administrator, and he went to a presentation. That was—I don't know—it was a, a ribbon cutting for some big uh, wastewater project or something other going on in the county. And, and the, the, the commissioner for the state Department of Environmental Protection was there as the as the guest speaker. So he's in charge of all the water and wastewater stuff in the state of New Jersey. My father was a county administrator, was present, and other uh, uh, dignitaries were in the in the, the audience. As well, now the commissioner was from a very conservative Jewish background. And he was talking about the environment and why we need to pay attention to the environment and pay attention to the signals that the environment around us in New Jersey, which you can imagine pretty much what that's like, okay, were telling us that we would only pay attention. New Jersey is famous for its pollution, okay? And so the, the commissioner is talking, and he says... You know, the environment is, is telling us that we need to, to wake up and take care of these things just like that. We, we need to make sure we don't neglect listening to these things, these signals that we're getting. Like It's just like the story of Balaam's ass. And so, my, and so all of the officials in the crowd, all the Gentile officials are nodding their heads, having absolutely no idea what he's talking about, my father being one of them. So my father came home and he asked me, his son, "What in the world is Balaam's ass? What is he referring to?" So, so that that was my introduction to the story of, of Balaam's Balaam's ass. So, now one of the, the things that uh, we should mention right off the right off the the, the, the front here is that the uh, uh, we now refer to Balaam's beast of burden as his donkey. The the ass is the traditional King James version of the story. And um, so it's it's the older traditional term, but I'm going to refer to him as a donkey for multiple reasons. And if any of the children here are asking their parents on the way home, why did Mr. Pike use that bad word that none of us are allowed to use in our house, I will delegate the responsibility of explaining that to the fathers, Okay. (laughs) Let's let's pick it up. Numbers chapter 22. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Read verses 1 to 14. Now the children of Israel broke camp and camped west of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So when Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that, Israelite, all that Israel did to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was irritated because of the children of Israel. Then Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this congregation will lick up everything around us as a young bull licks up the grass of the field. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent ambassadors to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, look, a people came from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, come at once and curse this people for me, for they are stronger than we. If we would be able to strike some of them then I could drive them out of the land for I know he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with their divinations in their hand and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Then he said to them, lodge here tonight and I will bring back to you whatever words the Lord may speak to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. God then came to Balaam and said to him, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, sent to me, saying, Look, a people came out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, come at once and curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to strike them and drive them from the land. Then God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them, neither shall you curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the rulers of Balak, return to your Lord, for God is not allowing me to go with you. Therefore the rulers of Moab rose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam is unwilling to come with us. So basic story here. Balak is the Moabite king. He sees the huge number of Israelites encamped around him, and he hears the story of how they had decimated the Amorites. This is what we talked about last week under Sihon and Og, and the fear of the Lord came into the nations around them. So he sends ambassadors to Balaam, who lives near the river. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the river generally refers to the Euphrates River, so that's actually quite a ways away back in Mesopotamia. Their, their heartland that's where they originally came from so uh, so he 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 sends the delegates back there ambassadors with the divining fee with them so they have some money to pay for the the pay for the the uh, the curse to be applied and think about what Balaam does his response is, I'm not going to do anything without first consulting with the Lord. And he consults the Lord. The Lord tells him, no, you're not going to go. These people are not going to be cursed. They're blessed. And he actually, he he, so he asks the Lord, and then he follows the Lord's instruction, does exactly what he says, and he sends the men back with their money and says, I'm not going to do this. So, Certainly appears like a righteous, God-fearing man to me. I mean, what more could he have possibly done than that? He consults God, speaks to him personally. God God speaks personally to him. He obeys the Lord's command, turns down the offer, doesn't go with a man. So that's why I say, first of all, he starts off very good in the story. So let's continue. In verse 15, Balak yet again sent rulers, more numerous and more honorable than these. When they came to Balaam, they said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, I beg of you not to hesitate in coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly. I will do whatever you say. Therefore come and curse the people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the rulers of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord God to make it little or great in my mind. To make it little or great in my mind. Now therefore, stay here tonight so I may know more, the Lord will say to me. Thus God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If these men are present to summon you, rise and follow them. But the word I speak to you, that you must do. So... Uh, so Balak sends even more prominent, more people and more prominent people to go to Balaam and promises tremendous financial rewards, great wealth if he will comply. And once again, Balaam takes a very principled stance. He says, even if you gave me houses full of gold and silver, I will not go beyond what the word of the Lord says. So good for him. Very, very righteous man here at this point in time. And he inquires of the Lord that night, and then the Lord responds to Balaam that he may go with the men, but he must speak only the words that the Lord tells him. Let's read starting in verse 20. This is the heart of the story. Thus God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If these men are present to summon you, rise and follow them. But the word I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the rulers of Moab. Then God was very angry because he went. And the angel of God stationed himself to divert him from his purpose. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of God standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey with his staff to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of God stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. Now when the donkey saw the angel of God, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot. So he struck her again. Then the angel of God went and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right hand or to the left. So when the donkey saw the angel of God, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam became angry and struck the donkey with a staff. Then God opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me this third time? Balaam then said to the donkey, because you abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey, on which you rode from your youth to this very day? Did I ever sow you such utter disregard for you? And he replied, no. No. Then God opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed in worship. The angel of God then said to him, Why did you strike your donkey a third time? Behold, I came out as your adversary because your way was not acceptable before me. So when the donkey saw me, she turned aside from me this third time. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I sinned, for I did not know you met me as an adversary on the road. Now, therefore, if my way is not acceptable to you, I will turn back. The angel of God then said to Balaam, go with the men. But only the word I may speak to you. This you must be careful to speak. So Balaam went with the rulers of Balak. So this is a wild story. Um, So Balaam goes with the men. Under strict instructions, you will say only what I tell you to say. And he has his two servants accompanying him and he's riding on his faithful donkey. The Lord becomes angry with him and the angel of God is also referred to here as the angel of the Lord in the passage that we read is sent to kill Balaam with drawn sword in hand. The the, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord but Balaam doesn't. And the donkey tries three times to avoid the disaster and all three times Balaam who doesn't see the angel of the Lord beats the donkey with his stick. First time the donkey turns aside off the off the road on, onto a field. The second time the donkey is in a is in a, a narrow you know if you if ever in Europe or in the Middle East, you know, there they're narrow streets and there are walls on either side. And so is in a place like that with a with a vineyard on either side. And so the donkey the donkey turns aside and crushes the foot of Balaam against one of the walls. And so he beats the donkey a second time. And then the third time, there's no place to turn, nowhere to go. And so the donkey sees the, the angel with the drawn sword, and the donkey just lies down or sits down with Balaam on top. And he feels like a fool and starts beating, beats, beats the, the, the donkey the third time. And then the crazy part, the Lord, it says he opens the mouth of the donkey who speaks to Balaam. Now, donkeys obviously understand human speech because people give them commands and they do what they tell them. So, but they don't ever talk back. Okay? This, is, this is the unusual part. All right, And so the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey who just speaks to Balaam. And the, the donkey says, why are you treating me like this? Why are you beating me? And the crazy, the crazy part of the story is not the fact that the donkey speaks to Balaam because God can do anything. God, God, you know, God can loosen the, the, the tongue of a donkey or anything else. God can do what he wants. The crazy part to me is that Balaam actually has, talks back to the donkey. <laughs> you would think that somebody would say, Whoa, a donkey's my donkey is talking to me. That's never happened before. I've never heard of that. I better pay attention to what's going on. But he starts arguing with the donkey. Okay. Which is, tells you something about him. All right. He starts arguing with the donkey. The donkey says, Why are you treat him in this bed? He says, Well, you know and then and the donkey says, Look, I'm your faithful donkey who's been serving you for years. Have I ever done anything like this? And he has to admit, No, you haven't. So so uh and then the Lord opens up the eyes of Balaam. He sees the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword, who is, and, and, and the angel of the Lord says, you know, I was about to, if it wasn't for the donkey, he said, you'd be dead man now. I would have killed you already if it wasn't for the donkey lying down. And he gives the instruction, the same instruction that was given to Balaam at the beginning of the journey. He says, listen. You can go, and Balaam says, look, if you want me to go back home, that's fine. He so said, you can go with the men, but you will say only what I tell you to say. That's it. So, what, 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 would, we, what would I assume from this story here? My, what I assume is, doesn't say it, but just based on what the angel, lord, the fact that he was going to kill the man, and the fact that he reiterates the instruction again, my assumption is that Balaam, In the course of traveling along with these men and maybe thinking about, you know, that gold and silver business, the house of gold and silver might not have been such a bad idea that he starts changing his heart. He starts changing his mind and the angel Lord knows that knows what what he's thinking and and has to go back and threaten him with death and then remind him, listen, these were the instructions. You will only say what I tell you to say. So that's my, I'd say Balaam went from good to bad in his heart. And the angel Lord was aware of this and brings him to repentance and the fear of the Lord. So I want to back up and ask a question that may have occurred to some of you, but probably not to everybody here is this the angel of the Lord or the angel of God character? Is this just, I don't have to say just an angel, is this, is this an angel like Gabriel or Michael or one of the many angels or is this referring to somebody else? This expression, the angel of the Lord. Uh, for those who were here when we were going through Genesis, Genesis, we encountered this, this expression a few times, and actually early Christians talk about this a lot. When they're explaining the divinity of Christ, particularly to the Jews, when the early Christians are explaining to the Jews that, that Christ is divine, that He is the Son of God, He's the Logos, He's, he's always existed, and He is God and can be worshipped, that is a tough sell to the Jews. And the way that the Christians explained this in the beginning was not going to John chapter 1 in verse 1 like we would. They used the Old Testament stories like this one to explain them and they threw some tough questions at the Jews to rattle their concept of God. They talked about examples of where it says the angel of the Lord appeared. And they saw these as appearances of God in the form of the Son of God, or the Word. These are appearances of Christ, or theophanies, in the Old Testament in these stories. Okay, Now that that concept may be familiar to you, or it may be unfamiliar, but I want to back up and explain some, some, some concepts, and then we'll look at some of these passages to show you that it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Genesis 32. But actually, for first example, Genesis 16, in the story of Hagar. This is the first example in the Old Testament where it speaks of the angel Lord. Hagar runs away from Sarah, her mistress, and the angel Lord appears and tells her to go back and return. And Genesis 16 13, after the encounter it says, Then Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who appeared to me face to face. All right? That sounds like a little more than a, than a regular angel, the angel of the Lord. So the early Christians point this out to the, to the Jews. Another example, Genesis 22 in the story of uh, Abraham being called to go up in the mountain and sacrifice his son Isaac. And in the, in the Septuagint, the, the wording is a little, little sharper and on this point here. Early Christians refer to this. It says in, in the Septuagint, the Abraham called this place, the Lord has appeared, as it said to this day, in the mountain the Lord was seen. I realize an Masoretic text is a little different than that. And then Exodus chapter 3. This is actually uh, probably the clearest and most cited example. In Exodus chapter 3, let's go back there. It's the famous account of the burning bush. A lot of the early Christians talk about this in connection with the angel of the Lord being, referring to the Son of God. Exodus chapter 3, and verse 1. Now Moses was tending the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Then he led them to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Of course, that's Mount Sinai. Then the angel Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he saw the bush burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not consumed. When therefore the Lord saw him turn aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Then he said, here I am. So he said, do not come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, uh, the God of Jacob. And Moses then hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So, so what is it that's in the burning bush that's referred to as the angel of the Lord? I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he's afraid to look at God. Uh, it says the God is calling out to him from, from, from the bush. So, so what do we do with that? Uh, I'll tell you what the early Christians did with passages like these, as well as the story in Genesis... Uh, I think it's uh, Genesis 18... In the account of Abraham having lunch with the Lord, having him over for lunch, and the Lord and two angels, well, who was that? (laughs) You having God? God came over to have lunch with you, and and, and the Christians are challenging the Jews: Who was that? Who was there? Who's described as the Lord? Or in the account of Jacob wrestling with God all night? He's wrestling with a man all night long in Genesis 32, but then it talks about he's wrestling with God. What's that? And the the early Christians saw this as these are the appearances of God in the Old Testament. However, no one can see God the Father. John chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 6. No one has seen or can see God referring to the Father. I mean, how airtight of a, of, a, of a case is that? No one has seen or can possibly see God. It's impossible to see the Father who the Scripture tells us dwells in unapproachable light and possesses all things. God cannot be God the Father cannot be located at one point in space. He cannot descend to earth, he cannot ascend from the earth, he can't, he can't take take place inside of a burning bush. He can't, he can't be God the Father is beyond all things and he can't be located in any one place. On the other hand, the Logos, the eternal word of God who existed before all ages who in John chapter 1 it says, was in the beginning with God, who proceeded from the Father, through whom whom all things were made. In Micah chapter 5, in the famous passage about Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, it says his origins are from eternity. Okay? He always existed. So, we know that the Son of God was involved in the creation of the universe, that he always existed, he was not created, he proceeded from the Father. Well, what has the Word of God been doing throughout all of history from the time of the creation until the time of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Well, the early Christians saw that he was intervening. He was speaking on behalf of the Father. That when someone saw God, it was impossible that it could have been the Father. It had to be the Son of God. The Son of God is not a creative being, but is fully divine and can take the form of a human or an angel, which the Father cannot. Just as, Justin Martyr, one of my favorite early Christian writers, writing it around the year 160. This is in his uh, first apology. So, is, it, is it an idea of how the Christians, in the first few centuries, how they saw and explained the Scriptures. Says so now the Word of God is His Son, as we have before said. He is called angel and apostle, for he declares whatever we ought to know, and is sent forth to declare whatever is revealed. As our Lord himself said, he who hears me, hears him who sent me. That's from Luke, Luke 10, 16. From the writings of Moses also, this will be manifest. For thus it is written, and the angel of God spoke to Moses in a flame of fire out of the bush and said, I am that I am. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, go down to Egypt and bring forth my people. Of course, that's Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush incident. Just a mortar continues. And if you wish to learn what follows, you can do so from the same writings. For it's impossible to relate the whole here. He's saying, look, this is all over the writings of Moses. So much is written for the sake of proving that Jesus the Christ is the Son of God and his apostle, being. "...of old the word, and appearing sometimes in the form of fire, sometimes in the likeness of angels, but now, by the will of God, having become man for the human race, he endured all the sufferings which the devils instigated, the senseless Jews to inflict upon him, who, though they have it expressly affirmed in the writing of Moses, and the angel of, of the God spoke to Moses in a flame of fire in the bush and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's from Justin Martyr's First Apology in Nicene Fathers, Volume 1, page 184. So, early Christians understood that when someone saw the Lord, and when it speaks about the angel of the Lord, and it certainly seems to be talking about God, that this was not talking about an angel, a created being like Gabriel or Michael, it refers to the Son of God. Of course, the word Angel also means messenger. So they saw the Son of God, the Word of God, is interceding in human events multiple times before the incarnation of Jesus. He is sent by the Father to do his will. Uh, if this is a new concept, there's an article in Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs on Angel Lord about how the early Christians put this together. So it should be no surprise putting all this together. an early Christian writer Irenaeus comments specifically on this story about the angel of the Lord intervening and speaking to Balaam. He said, Now the angel who appeared to Balaam was the word himself. And in his hand he held a sword to indicate the power which he had from above. That's from... uh, Irenaeus uh in I see in Fathers volume 1 page 572. So he's specifically in, identifying the angel lord in the numbers 22 account we just read with the word of god or the son of god which all fits. Now Irenaeus said so well who's Irenaeus? Well Irenaeus Irenaeus learned in his youth from the feet, from the feet of at the feet of Polycarp who in turn learned from the apostle John. So he's one human link removed from the apostle the apostles himself. So, uh, uh, even though his writing is not inspired, I would take what he had to say a little more seriously than what what I would find in a modern commentary. So, let's think about this. If Irenaeus is right, if the early Christians are right, and they use scriptures like these to prove the divinity of Christ from the Old Testament and the preexistence, think about it. What have we seen thus far in the book of Numbers about Jesus? In Numbers 9, we see the Passover lamb foreshadowed in the instructions for observing the Passover, all the details of the passion of Christ. In Numbers 13, we're given the name. When Hosea, the son of Nun, his name is changed in the Greek to Jesus, and that Moses would not be able to complete the mission. That it would be Jesus who would complete the mission that was begun by Moses, who would lead the people like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. That's from Numbers 13. Numbers 19, the red heifer and the water. We talked about that about it foreshadowing that Christ would be uh, killed outside the camp and the and the water, uh, water of cleansing associated with that. Numbers 20, the rock in the wilderness. Paul says that the rock that we we saw there that Moses struck with a stick was Christ from uh, what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which would only be crucified once. Numbers 21, David alluded to that during the communion message. The bronze serpent that had to be lifted up Jesus said he would have to be lifted up like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. This is a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross, the crucifixion, the only way that people can be saved by the poisonous bite of the serpent of sin that Jesus points to in John 3. And now, with all of these different things that we learn about Jesus in numbers 22 Jesus the son of the Son of God but before before his incarnation the Son of God here shows up in the story himself with a sword in his hand to rebuke Balaam so the Son of God makes an appearance himself you know when I was a, a, a Okay, we don't we don't have a television in our house right now. I, I think the last movie I watched was Prince of Egypt. <laughs> okay, Let's show you how how disconnected I am from the 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 entertainment world. But when I was growing up as a child, you know, we'd watch movies on TV occasionally, black and white movies. That's how old how old far back I go. And, and one of my favorite producers directors was Alfred Hitchcock. Okay, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock was famous for a lot of things. And and one of the one of the quirky things that he was famous for was what happened as, as a young director. What happened is one of the extras didn't show up one day for for work, and so what, what he did. So Alfred Hitchcock just handed the camera over to his assistant, and he got on the stage and you know walked across the street or just just some. He he, he was an extra, a non-speaking part. And he had a kind of a quirky sense of humor. So what he would do after that was, in in almost every movie he made after that, he slipped himself into the movie somewhere in there. You know, so you're you're, walk, you're watching the movie and, and you're paying attention. You're, you're getting into the movie, and then somebody somebody passes across the screen and say, "Wait a minute, that was Alfred Hitchcock. because he's the director of the movie." Or somebody's walking walking some dogs out there. So. He would do this as a joke. He put himself into the story. And so people would say, I wonder where he's going to do it this time. So it got so distracting, he put it in the beginning of the movie because he wanted people to pay attention to the actual plot line of the movie. So for those who are from extremely conservative Anabaptist backgrounds, this is probably all over your head, but maybe some others can, can take some benefit. So but here the Son of God inserts himself into the story here in Numbers, but not this is not a, 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 a walk-on extra. Here, he's a main character with a significant speaking role in the story. So I, I think that's that's pretty pretty amazing to me. So, what do we learn about the Son of God from this encounter? Okay, one thing I learned is: don't mess with him. He's got the sword in his hand, he bears the sword, you better do what he says. Okay? This reminds me of the scene in Revelation 19. The Son of God with a sword in His hand. Think about this. This is one glimpse of who Jesus is Revelation chapter 19. Uh, It's both encouraging and terrifying. But let's see Jesus for who He is. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. My goodness, there's a vivid picture of one aspect of who Jesus is when he's coming back to bring judgment in the end. So, The picture of the Son of God as someone someone to be to be to be afraid of in a good sense. He comes, the other thing I learned about is he comes with a strong message, but it's for the good of those who are listening. He wants to save us, not destroy us. He came to bring Balaam to repentance if he wouldn't listen. The other thing I learned about the Son of God from this story, the Angel of the Lord, he's also, he's both kind and just, and he, I like this, he explains, you know, he says, I would have killed you, but I would have spared the donkey, (laughs) okay, he even cares about the donkey, you know, when the U.S. government wants to wipe out uh, one of their enemies, they'll, they'll send a missile over and. And obliterate, uh, and obliterate the whole area. And they, they say, well, we got the bad guy, but there's a collateral damage. We got the wedding party and five other people died. This is, he goes, Jesus comes with, the Son of God comes with a sword for a surgical strike. He's taking the man out, but he's going to spare the innocent donkey. So that tells me something about the Son of God as well. Only the guilty party is going to get destroyed here in this story. The other thing I learned is he sees the evil in our hearts. It's easy to fool people. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 23. He says, you know, you Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. But the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. He can see that. He sees what's in our hearts. He sees the evil that's there. You can't fool him. Balaam is walking along the road. He told the people, listen, I'm only going to do what the Lord tells me. He's walking down the road, but he had a change of heart along the way. He went bad on the inside. Looked the same on the outside. But the word of God knew what was going on. The Lord knew what's going on. He wasn't going to get go away with anything. So God sees the evil in our hearts, even if nobody else does. And he wasn't going to put up with it. The other thing is, this is the good news is, Balaam repented. He turned himself in. He says, You want me to go back home? I will. I'll stop right now. So he 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 made no excuses. He repented when he realized his error of his ways. And and, and when, when he repented, the sword, the sword was not used. He was spared. The Lord doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. It's like the, in the story, we, we saw that in the story of, of, of Jonah with Nineveh. He wants to give people an opportunity to repent no matter how foolish or wicked they've been. Another thing I learned here Son of God doesn't play favorites. We've seen this in the book of Numbers. In the story of Korah's rebellion, these were religious leaders who got taken out by the Lord for their sin. He took out, God rebuked Miriam and Aaron. We saw that in the book of Numbers. People in the inner circle. Here, he's going after one of his prophets. Next time we get together, we're going to see Balaam was a true prophet of God who gave some amazing prophecies that would be fulfilled 1,400 years later about Jesus. He was a famous prophet that was respected. People came from far away and were willing to pay a lot of money to take to tap into the spiritual power that He had. He spoke with God directly, and God answered him directly. He was admired by kings and nobles. However, to the angel Lord, that meant nothing. That what's highly esteemed by men is detestable in God's sight. He was concerned about his heart and didn't treat him special at all. He treated him the same as anybody else. If anything, he expected more from Balaam because he knew more. And that's what, isn't that what Jesus said in uh, Luke 12? The servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes but he who did not know yet committed the things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So if God gave Balaam more; he expected more from him, and that applies to us as well. God does not play favorites. If anything, he expects more. And Second Peter. There's a warning in line with this. Peter explains. Second Peter is, is full of warning. And he says, just as there were false prophets in the past, there will be false teachers among you. And he then goes on and points to the example of Balaam here as someone who was like that. As a classic example. He was a, he was a prophet of God who went bad in the end we'll see later on in his life. 2 Peter chapter 2, let's read there. He taught, Peter talks about Balaam as an example for us. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter says, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Then in verse 10, continues, it continues, says, Especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They're presumptuous in self-will. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, Speak evil of things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deception, while they feast on you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices, and are accursed children. Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So, Says they've forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam. Balaam was on the right path, but he strayed from it, and that's what he's saying. there are going to be people, are going to be people in the church, who were warned about this, who are on the right path tra- track, but they they depart, they stray from it, uh, and we've talked about this a lot here that. Uh, uh, you know, some of us are from a, a church background where there have been some court cases coming out about horrible things that happened in the past—sexual abuse, things like that—and uh, sexual abuse, uh, bullying, pe- treating people really badly. And some people get shocked when that happens. Say, "Well, man, I thought this was—I thought this was the Lord's church. How could this possibly happen?" Well, if we read the New Testament, Jesus, Peter, Jude warn us there are going to be bad people in the church. There are going to be people who are on the right path but stray. Even heavy hitters like Balaam. So we shouldn't be surprised when this happens. It shouldn't rock our faith. It should confirm our faith. And obviously when these things come up you need to deal with it the way the scriptures say to deal with it. But we shouldn't be shocked because Peter and Paul and Jude warn us about this. And uh, Peter continues about these people who were on the right path and for and forsake it. In verse 21, he said it would have been better for them not to have to, to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. But it's happened to them according to the true proverb: a dog refers to his own returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So Three animals that God uses to teach us a lesson. A pig, a pig that it's washed, goes back and dives back in the mud. A dog okay, that eats, eats something, throws it up, throws up its vomit, and then goes back and licks up its vomit again. All right. So if somebody calls you a pig or a dog, you'd be insulted. Or if somebody called you a donkey or the King James equivalent of that, you'd be insulted by that too, okay? So, but we're supposed to learn lessons from these animals. Learn lessons from the animals, including the story of the donkey. There will be people who will depart like the pigs that are washed and go back to wallowing in the mud and like the dogs who vomit up their their filth and then go back and lick it up again. So don't, we should learn from those. We can even learn from the donkey here in the story. Uh, one thing I learned from the story of the donkey is God can do anything. This is a reminder. I mean, why did Mary believe that she could have give, give birth to, to, to a, a baby even though she didn't know man? Because God can do anything. That's the nature of God. I mean, God can swallow Jonah up in the whale. God can part the Red Sea. God can stop the sun in the sky. God can bring water out of a rock. God can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. God created all, I mean, I'm an engineer, so I'm a very logical person. God created all the laws of the universe. He can bend them or snap them or suspend them anytime he wants to, because he's the creator of all things. Nothing's impossible for God. He can do anything. So, yes, he can even loosen the tongue of a donkey and allow it to talk and say what's on its mind. All right? Uh. Another lesson from the donkey. Sometimes others may see spiritual danger that you're in that you don't see yourself. Okay, They may see God more clearly. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord with the, the drawn sword. Balaam was blind to it. He didn't see it. There's spiritual reality around us. Other people may see things before you do. And what's the response of a lot of people when someone tells them, when somebody tries to intervene with them? They take the stick out and start beating them. Okay? Not a good move. Don't beat up on people who are trying to help you that see a danger in your life that you may be blind to. Don't treat them like that. Don't repeat the error of Balaam. The donkey was a true faithful friend he did crush Balaam's foot, okay, but he saved his life, okay? Let's not forget that. I want to have friends in my life who are like the donkey, who are faithful, who are looking out for me and are willing to tell me the truth, and if I get my foot banged up a little bit because of, because of what they did, I don't need to start beating them for it, okay? Okay? I need friends like that donkey, and I want to be a friend like the donkey, too. He was a good, faithful donkey. So, and when others, when we're on a path that's headed for destruction, pay attention, listen. Even if it seems like you're hearing it from a two-legged version of a donkey, they may be wiser than you are. They may see danger that you're missing, and they may be seeing the Son of God. Amen.